Hello, and welcome to another year of Third Times a Charm. This is episode 45 of The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. I'm your host, Michael, not Corleone, and I just want to address the rumors up front. If you have no idea what I'm referring to, over the past year or so, I've been appearing on other podcasts on the network, and when asked about my show, this very show, I've been threading the narrative of a dirty rumor claiming that the show was going to end this year and there would not be another season. And now, I shall address these rumors. I'm not fucking leaving! The show goes on! This is my home! They're gonna need a fucking wrecking ball to take me out of here! They're gonna need to send in the National Guard a fucking SWAT team, cause I ain't going nowhere! That's right, the rumors were false. Get ready for at least one more year of this show. Last year got ambushed a little bit by the pandemic, and I didn't do some of the shows I had planned on doing, because the idea was to do some of those bigger movies in person, and, well, that just wasn't possible. So, this year I hope to tackle a lot of big-name movies, blockbusters, if you will, and fill in some major gaps regarding the more well-known and successful franchises. While I've done Star Wars and some other main names this year kicked off hot with TMNT. Talked about that one last month with Joe too. And we got some Godzilla on the near horizon. So stay tuned for all that. I'm still looking for a third Sean Connery movie to make a little trilogy of Connery event. He's got that third Bond film. He's got that third Indiana Jones film. But I'm just not sure if he was in another part three. I mean, Zardoz never made it to part two even. So who knows? Let me know if you know by emailing me at T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me. Okay, so today's show is a great way to kick off the new season. It's the first time I'm revisiting a movie previously reviewed on the show. Kind of. This is the Godfather Coda, the death of Michael Corleone. Uncle Francis is back, not with a redux or a director's cut, but a coda. This is a re-edit closer in line with his original vision. We get into it. That is, my unofficial co-host, Brian Slumber Party Rodriguez and I. It's been a crazy few months for new versions of old movies. Uncle Francis has Godfather Coda and that new Apocalypse Now edit. Uh, Richard Kelly just dropped a completed version of his Southland Tales cans cut. And in just a few short days, one Zack Snyder's Justice League will be available on HBO Max and everywhere else across the planet. Point is, this ain't a new thing, and it ain't going anywhere anytime soon. So just sit back and enjoy. So let's get to it. Kiss your uncle's hand, sneak behind his back with your cousin, and bite the ear off your boss, because we're going, going, back, back, to Sicily, Sicily. Hey, 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 
Well, Brian, what on earth are we doing back here today? What is going on? <laughs> well, Mike, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Those are the perfect words for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> To describe what is happening. So, yeah, today uh, is a very special day on the show. It's the first time we're reviewing the same movie twice. Sort of. We've, like, reviewed the same movie over two or three podcasts before, but never, I don't think, have we revisited something. So, this is pretty interesting. This is the Godfather Coda. Francis Ford Coppola went ahead, that, that crazy Uncle Francis, you know, <laughs> had, had all this spare time on his hands, uh, decided to go back into Godfather 3 and uh, readjust it the way he likes. Man, uh, this is kind of interesting because it comes right on the tails of his recut of Apocalypse Now. But Brian, what do you think about this coming out? Well, you hit the nail on the head when you bring up Apocalypse Now and Coppola in general. How many times has he recut Apocalypse Now? And Apocalypse Now might be one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah. You know? There's Redux. There's whatever the newest one is called. Obviously, there's the original cut. But I even think it changed from, like, theatrical to original release, you know? He tweaked that thing a lot. The latest one, I think, is the best one, but there are things I really like about Redux. We've seen Godfathers be cut differently in the past. There's that famous TV cut. Yes, yes. I believe it's called The Godfather Saga. Saga, yes, yes, where they cut it chronologically, which I actually really enjoy. But I kind of see it. I'm a big Godfather fan. Godfather 2 is probably my favorite film of all time. I know I just said that about Apocalypse Now, but what can I say? (laughs) (laughs) This guy makes good movies. Well, some of them. Uncle Francis. (laughs) Uncle Francis, yeah. So it's... Weird, because it's not like I prefer that version of The Godfather, but it's fun to see that version of The Godfather cut chronologically like that. So, I guess I feel the same way about this. The way it was promoted, it was promoted like, oh, this is fixing The Godfather 3. But fans of your show, and if you're just listening for the first time, please listen to that episode of Third Time to Charm where we talk about The Godfather 3. But fans of your show will know, we didn't hate The Godfather 3. So we didn't feel that there was that much to fix. So yeah, I mean, I guess that's where I start from. Totally. Like, my mind also goes to the sort of culture that Coppola comes from as a filmmaker, the environment that he spawned from. You know, he was sort of the last to deal with the old studio moguls and feel the sort of uh, iron grip of being under that thumb and stuff. And then, you know, we all know he broke out with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and, you know, De Palma and all those guys. And they went on to sort of revolutionize American filmmaking for the 20th century. But what you also notice about those guys, they love to recut their shit. Yep. Oh, yeah. (laughs) George Lucas with the extended cuts of Star Wars. You have the walkie-talkies in E.T., you know? I mean, even Spielberg recut Close Encounters several times. There are many cuts of that movie. And so when I think of this happening, I think of this whole group of filmmakers sort of having this, uh, maybe in my mind what it is is like they don't have anyone to take it away from them anymore. It's total ownership so that they could keep making this movie for the rest of their life if they feel like it. It's kind of interesting. There's something a little different about this and these guys than when, say, Ridley Scott goes and cleans up 
Blade Runner for the fifth time and shoots new scenes. I don't know. That movie feels like the same movie. These guys are, it feels like they're trying to create a different experience when you watch it again. Yeah, even De Palma has had different cuts of Scarface, right? Or attempted to, at least. And sometimes it does feel like a cash grab. Often, I'll be honest with you, feels like a cash grab. I don't know if this one necessarily was, because I don't think people were clamoring for a Godfather 3 recut or anything like that. But there is some kind of element of that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is the time to cash in. I mean, it's a culture of content, right? So it's like everyone wants every version they could get of everything. And I think these guys might have also been responsible for that sort of director's cut when your DVD came home Mm -hmm. (laughs) for people to purchase at the house. Like the director could go back in and put in those extra couple scenes or or a shot or two or, or the gore and stuff. And so, you know, now this far removed, from all that it it is sort of like it feels like a 50 50 thing where it's like oh he's always wanted to do this he has talked at length even when the original came out even on that original podcast we talked about how he wanted to call it you know godfather coda the death of michael corleone and now he gets to do that but it's also the right time to do it too because studios people whoever they're all clamoring for for as much content i feel as possible for sure and i think that's why i uh, really didn't hate this as much as I hate a lot of other recuts or reboots or reconstitutions of anything, is that when, when we talked about this, as you said, there was always certain intentions here that he finally got to do. Now, he, and we'll get into it, he didn't get to do 100% of all of it because you can't just reshoot the movie. He didn't remake The Godfather 3. Pacino's still alive. Uh, <laughs> they, they, got, they got the face technology from The Irishman. They could have We'll talk about it, but maybe reshot that opening scene. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Um, and the other thing, too, that you mentioned that's so true is that this is such an environment that now favors the filmmaker rather than what the studio wants. Just to recap, the studio forced this movie to be made, essentially, originally, originally, not this cut. Correct. No, right, yeah. He didn't even, he said, let it be, and they said, no, we're cashing in. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, what was it? Only like a couple months, you had to have it out by Christmas. He had all these budget concerns. They didn't even give him the full budget. And there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about in regards to that compared to this today, what we got. But I I think of Game of Thrones, right? And Game of Thrones is almost the other way. It's almost the opposite happened in those final seasons. But they essentially kind of ruined the show because they wanted out of there because they were being offered so many deals to do Star Wars things another HBO show, and they were getting deals left and right, and they were kind of sick of doing Game of Thrones. So they really rushed the ending, and they didn't take their time with it. The Godfather 3 was rushed for the opposite reason. Francis, if he was going to do it, wanted to take his time with it. The studio was the one who was like, nah, you gotta get this out by this time. No, we're not paying Robert Duvall this. No, we're not doing that. Just get it done. It'll make money. It's a Godfather movie. I just found it funny Watching this made me think about that and thinking about things like Game of Thrones, how everything is now in the filmmakers, kind of. We talk about it a lot, the Snyder Cut coming out, right? That's so in league with what this is, and that would have never happened 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, absolutely, and I I feel like there's a lot of misconception in general about the Godfather films. Like, I even hesitate to call them gangster films in the true sense like it's not goodfellas it's not even public enemy or white heat or anything from like back in the 40s or anything like sure they're the mafia but it's like a family drama yes there's murder and action and stuff from time to time but i almost feel like it's not about that and it seemed like back then the studio was like expecting to get 
almost like a Scorsese gangster film mm-hmm. out of Coppola, you know? <laughs> like, it just seems like the expectations were so different uh, from both sides. You can totally feel that the studio was like, put it out, put it out, but Coppola was like, let's take our time and do it right. Like, you're the ones making me do this in the first place. Let me at least do it the way I want to. And they're like, you can't even do that. Unfortunately, he couldn't reshoot anything, but... Yeah, at least he has this opportunity. Well, albeit it's becoming less rare, I think that uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff to discuss when we get into it. For sure, for sure. No time but the present, right? Let's get into it. (laughs) Yeah, so I think mainly we should just focus on discussing the differences here. If you want to hear our full review of the movie, you could go check out the first version of this episode of the godfather 3 i definitely would this is feels very much like a sequel to that episode um only because Mm -hmm. i'm probably going to refer back to things that we talked about on that episode and not go into the whole spiel you know so uh guys listen to that episode it's one of the great ones I'm not even going to do like a plot summary or anything like that. But as soon as this movie opens, the differences are right in your face. Uh, It no longer opens with the dark shots of their lake house in Nevada. Those are all gone. And the entire stuff at the church with Michael getting his medal and everything, that's all gone. That's not here. We're going to start with the scene that originally occurs around 40 minutes in the original cut the scene with michael corleone and the archbishop where the archbishop is asking him to save the church with a hefty donation and michael expresses his interest in controlling immobilari and expanding it just briefly i'll read in this article i'm I'm looking at the first words of the Godfather Coda are now Don Corleone, I need your help. And they now mirror the opening of the original Godfather, where he is greeted by someone saying pretty much the same thing. Okay, so yeah, like this entire scene plays out and opens the film. And then we cut to the party. And for a while, we're kind of back into the movie the way it runs. Now, let's sort of discuss this and dissect what's going on here. Initial response, Brian. Okay, I have a lot of thoughts. This was uh, something that I read about before I saw it that I wasn't too happy with, to be honest with you, and it's for selfish reasons. I brought up on the last podcast that, like, this scene, like, that was my mom's church, Old St. Patrick's Cathedral, down in Little Italy, and it was always cool to see because I'd been in that church and I'd been there, so now that's gone, and I'm almost like, oh, man, but... I get it. One thing this movie does really well that the last one... Again, we both love the last one, but maybe the last one wasn't as great with is pacing. And I think there was some a term that maybe we didn't use in the last episode, but I, I kind of thought about it this time, and it was definitely not a term I don't think being used in 1990, and that's fan service. A lot of that first act, and a lot of the lingering scenes, and a lot of the lingering shots from the original cut of The Godfather 3 are kind of fan service, right? We're seeing characters who are only a little bit involved in the Godfather saga, but you're like, oh, those are Sonny's twin daughters, you know? (laughs) Unless you read the book, then Johnny Fontaine is a huge character. Yes, 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 for sure. I think book club was uh was uh still around back then and uh, oh yeah that- I, th- I think this might have been <laughs> one of the first nails in the coffin of book club. <laughs> I forgot about that <laughs> but um yeah I-, I think it was for the better in the end of the day I'm not gonna get selfish with some great still great Lower East Side and Little Italy scenes and shots 
that I love and, um, you know, maybe we'll probably get to them a little bit later. But I saw what he was doing and this kind of, it kind of firms up what he originally wanted, right? So he, Francis, had always seen Godfather 1 and 2 as almost like a continuous movie and Godfather 3 as that coda, the death of Michael Corleone. Originally, it opened up with a big party, you know, which, again, the big party is the big ceremony. Um, And we do get a party, but the party feels smaller now that it's not followed by this ceremony where Michael's given this medal. So it doesn't feel like the Vegas... The weddings. Yeah. Yeah, they're both weddings? Is the second one a wedding? Oh, the wedding, and then I think um, it's the um, confirmation. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's a confirmation of his son. Yes, correct. So it doesn't feel as big. And if you're going with the vision that Coppola wants, I totally get that, right? Like, it's just supposed to be a coda. It's just supposed to be an epilogue. It's not supposed to be as big as the other films. Mike, though, I have to admit, you did forget something about the film that you didn't mention. The actual first scene. What's the actual first scene? You didn't see that part where Coppola's talking? Oh, well, that's... Yes, okay. Well, that's an option. There is an optional introduction by Coppola that you can watch, which I did, which I thought we would get to eventually, but we would start off talking about the movie itself. But you may reference it, for sure. Uh, Well, I started uh, with that, and all I'll say is this. Like, my writing teacher in college said something that I'll never forget. Like, never apologize for your work at the beginning. Then you're just setting yourself up for... Something else, you know? I'm not a fan of Coppola tagging this on to the beginning like this. Just do your recut and that's fine. I think he's put himself in the beginning of Apocalypse Now as well. You don't need to explain yourself, dude. If you've put it out there, we already get it. So, like, come on, Uncle Francis. Like, I hear you. I hear you. It was nice to see him. I'm glad he's still alive yes, and kicking and in that stuff. respect. Yes, in that respect. But There wasn't any of his wine in the background. He's not, like, hawking anything. <laughs> but, but you're right. You know, to a certain extent, like, let, just let it speak for itself. Exactly. Exactly. Certainly. But overall, that opening thing, yeah, like I was mad, I'm initially mad of not seeing the church. But once I watched the entire film and watch, once I watched the flow, and I don't know if you picked up on this, but the biggest thing to me in the watch was just how fast they were cutting to different things compared to before. And, and again, I, I thought it helped with, with flow and making it feel different than the other Godfather films. Oh, oh, there's definitely a different pace. It certainly feels quicker, even though it's only about five minutes shorter. I think it went from <laughs> 162 minutes to 158 minutes. The only, aside from completely omitted scenes, the only scene that I could tell that like was really chopped up that like started in the middle of the actual scene was when Michael is talking to his daughter on the uh, on the balcony outside. And she's like, you know, am I just a front? Is this and that? Like yeah, that's yeah. pretty much the only, and, but, but he did add a lot of, uh, fade to blacks and things as if they were sort of like ends of chapters and stuff. And I think generally that sort of tricks the mind a little bit as well into feeling like a different sort of uh, type of pace going on. I like that. I didn't have a problem with that. I don't really have like a problem with anything going on here. It just felt weird. Like what this opening scene does for me is sort of it recontextualizes the entire movie. Um, it it shows you Michael's state of mind and it sets it up entirely different than originally because when we were opening up with the shots of the lake house and where Fredo was murdered and, and all of this stuff and then we cut to the church, it sets up way more his, his confession and his repentance and, and his sort of all of that kind of stuff and that's a lot of stuff carried over from the last movie, you know, it's a lot of like godfather quote unquote stuff that he's still trying to deal with and I feel like that really sort of 
of defines his character more for me originally. It's why he's more into family, why he's more into trying to reconcile relationships and stuff like that. I, I feel like much of that stuff is serviced less successfully in this cut because now his state of mind is all about power, control, and basically ruling the world, like right from the jump. Uh, I, I feel like he's not going to change. He feels much more ruthless. He feels um, way darker. It's all about the money and control. The church, like, really, you know, having having a favor, the, the church needs to return for him. And I think that that actually helps pay off a lot more down the line at the very end of the movie, in the climax, when he gets screwed over by the church. That's what I mean is so weird about it, is some things play out better and some things don't play out as as much as I like them in the first time go around. That's ultimately sort of my my reading of like these opening scenes, like the way that this all falls together. For sure, Mike, it's almost I, I take this as almost and I I feel this way about Apocalypse Now as well. I've compared the Apocalypse Now cuts as the same guy retelling a story to a different group of friends, you know? You're going to get some things that are said the same. Something's going to seem bigger than the other times. And that's what this felt like to me. Not that one was better or worse, but if I was like, oh, oh, Uncle Francis, my friend Mike's here. Tell him the story you were telling me about uh, the end of Michael Colleone's life. And different things were highlighted differently this time. I've watched The Godfather 3 tons of times. I've never, ever really focused on exactly what you said. The church's betrayal, right? I was always focused on some of the other things, like his personal betrayals and all these new characters they added who end up betraying him, you know? But this one highlights so much that it's, oh, it's the church and that uh, Sicilian Don pulling the strings here. When it's framed that way, I don't know, it's the subtle things, and I'm not, like, uh, film educated enough to say exactly what they are. But, like I said, it's like the same person telling a different story a different time, and then me hearing the story being like, oh, oh, wait, the church was the one who screwed you over? Wow, you know? And nothing really changed here. Like you said, there's no real reshooting. It's just a slightly different telling of the same thing. Exactly, yeah. And then, like, the the other thing that kind of bugged me, like, there's, there's sort of a, a few rearranged scenes throughout the movie if you especially in the first half I don't know if you caught this and, and correct me if I'm wrong actually because I couldn't find any of this necessarily online because my memory may just be off because it's been a while since I last saw this but it seems like in this cut Michael Corleone goes to and fro the Vatican like several times as opposed yes. to in the last cut he it's kind of almost split between New York and uh, and like Italy and the Vatican City and that kind of stuff. Whereas here, it's like he's flying back and forth. Did you pick up on that? 100%. Th- that did happen, right? This one distinctly felt like when he was in a certain place, he was there for a while. Uh, I think it's like New York, then Rome. I think New York again, but it's not for long. And then Sicily for the whole opera thing. And it honestly was more impactful this way to me because it felt like the chain of events that happened in the end happened faster and more, I don't know, they had a little bit more like pep to them because of that. Because he meets meets Cardinal Lumberto or something like that. I feel like he meets that guy later in the film. So that his, like, brevity of being Pope is so fast. and But, like, in a good way, if that makes sense, you know? I like it and I don't like it. I'll, I'll, ex- I'll explain and you tell me if this, like, kind of makes sense at all. Um, like, I like the rearranging of the scenes as far as divulging certain information, right? As far as, like, what they're talking about, what's happening and stuff. But it is kind of jarring to think that he's traveling so much and like he's really sick you know like Ooh, yeah, maybe this true. maybe that's part of what 
puts him in the hospital. I don't know. But at first it was hard for my mind to be like, he's going back and forth. Like every scene, not every scene, but it's like, okay, one scene he's at the Vatican. The next scene he's literally back in New York and it's like just jumping all around. And I was like, this movie feels like it takes place over a longer period of time, but over a shorter runtime. Maybe this is where I wish that they could have used some technology to reshoot stuff and put some of those Vatican scenes maybe in... America or vice versa or you know what I'm saying be able to kind of streamline that a little more so that it didn't feel a bit more like patchwork than the rest of the changes did and that's ultimately not to uh skip to the whole thesis of this entire thing that's ultimately where this one was a fun watch and then I enjoy both these versions of the Godfather 3 that it still doesn't correct everything and it's not perfect because you can't undo some of the things you did just by recutting stuff you know back to the party scene at the beginning Kay is referencing the ceremony and how it was so gaudy and the award but like we didn't see that ceremony it didn't seem gaudy so I was trying to watch it with eyes that I'd never seen the original if that makes the original third one if that makes sense right and yeah I I knew what she was referencing because I saw it in the other version but I'm wondering like if I had plenty of people haven't seen the Godfather 3 especially younger people if I had someone who hadn't seen The Godfather 3 watching it now and thinking, like, what is she talking about? She's kind of being nasty because it wasn't that big of a deal. Because they have a scene where, like, his assistant is showing the medal to the press. And that's the only time you hear or see about the actual medal he got, except for uh, Joey Zaza's awards and stuff. Italian American of the Year Award. <laughs> I love Joey Zaza. I know we're not going to talk about things we love, but... We can. We'll get there. Okay, if, if we'll get there, remind me. But in terms of... There's a lot of failures here, and they're not failures of the recut. They're things that you could not correct. You you bring up uh, Sofia Coppola's performance, which is by far the thing people criticize the most about this film. And it's minimized in this version. He cuts scenes early, so you're not seeing it. None of that, if you remember, there's a lot of uh, dub in the original God- yeah. Godfather Yeah, thing. yeah, You don't see that here. I don't know if he re-aligned like, it properly or just cut the dubbed lines. I don't know. I'd, ha- I'd have to watch it again. But she seems like a lot less of a character in this one. He definitely downplayed her. So when we get to the ending, and again, we're bouncing around. I get it. But when, when we get to the ending and she's killed, it's a little less impactful if you were watching for the first time because she just seemed like this side character daughter. Where in that one, she's in a lot lot more substance and scenes but i get why he did it and i did a little research for this episode mike because the thing that boggled my mind so much winona Ryder was originally cast she dropped out only weeks before they were ready in italy they felt like they had no choice or francis has said so he put his daughter in and a big theme of our last episode is something that francis said and was about the movie and it actually ended up being true about his filming that like the sins of the father are passed on to the children and Sofia Coppola by far got the most shit for this because he put his 19 year old daughter in had them quickly rewrite the script because the script was originally for like a 24 25 year old like someone just out of college right like why would you put a 19 year old ahead of a foundation I mean just as a from from like a person as a actor I think Domino knew her way around I think you're right it was more the role less the person right I think that's what we're sort of coming to I don't know that necessarily Winona Ryder would have knocked this out of the park either. Winona yeah, I mean, I'll disagree with you there. I think Winona Ryder is 10 times the actress of Sofia Coppola. I think Sofia Coppola knows that because she's not an actor pretty much anymore. Yeah, but I just don't picture her as, um, let's just say, I mean, I don't know how this is going to come across, but she doesn't look like a member of the Corleone family. (laughs) No, no. Whereas I feel like Sofia Coppola, so much of the work is done just with her presence, you know, is just more in her delivery, I guess. 
I guess, but it's just even watching here. Now she just blah. Like I almost prefer the old crappy cut because in this one she's just a non-factor. And I, and I read and I blame Francis a hundred percent for this a hundred percent because I did an even deeper dive this time on that. And actually, Uh-oh. here we go. Two actresses were ready to go to Italy and shoot, and he said no. Let, let's just put my daughter in. Oh, do you have names? Do you know who they might have been? Do you know Laura San Giacomo? Laura San Giacomo? Yeah, Giacomo, sorry. Okay. I never know her name. She got very hot in the 90s, I feel. Yeah, she was in Pretty Women, but she had that show Just Shoot Me. Wasn't she in uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was like uh, the Soderbergh. Yeah, I really like her, and I think, you know, this is like a trained actor, and if, again, you're going to have the role a little older, fine. Good. The other person was uh, another Italian, or at least Italian name, Linda Fiorentino. You know Linda her? Florentino. Yeah. Yeah. She's in Men in Black, oh but she's gosh. in a bunch of other stuff. Both of them were considered, and apparently from what I read, deep diving, ready to go and like, let's fucking do this. But he's like, no, let's give it to my daughter. Apparently, again, and we've said this before, if, if Sophia was like begging him for it, then I would be like, all right, you know, it's hard for a dad to say no to a daughter like that. But she didn't want to do it. He forced her. She was in college. She didn't want to do it. So you have someone who doesn't want to do it, who doesn't have any preparation, who with a Valley Girl accent, and apparently that's why they have to dub so many things. Uh, she wasn't even saying Colleone right. Then you have two women who are great actors who look very similar to each other, with a very similar kind of style and everything. Either one of them would have knocked this. I think they would have either would have been better than Winona at the time. Damn. Look, I, I love Winona, but... Let's just say you don't want to go. Oh, we love her at the network. <laughs> There's even an entire show about Winona. Like, no, nothing. I just think for this particular role, you know, I, I just don't, you know, she, to me, will always be kind of Lydia, I guess. More like, you know, Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael. Style. Like, just a, a, a goth girl, maybe. Fair, fair. I, I get it. And look, she didn't do this. She, she dropped out because she was burnt out. She had done like three or four movies in a row. She probably wouldn't have put in a good performance. Fine. Okay. That's bad on them, too. For seeing an actor's schedule and being like, oh, they can pull this off. But here's another suggestion I have on this watch that I realized, hey, that could work. And it wouldn't work looks-wise, but it's still fine. You could find a way to Italian her up. So when when I've talked about Almost Famous a ton of times, both on my podcast, High School Slumber Party, and of course on PS I Love Hoffman, one of the most famous things to happen there was Sarah Pauly, kind of an indie actress, she, she drops out... From playing Penny Lane and Kate Hudson, not the Kate Hudson who guests on my show, the actual, sorry, Kate Hudson, but the actual Kate Hudson. The fake, the fake Kate Hudson. <laughs> who was playing William's sister, which was Zoe Deschanel's role eventually. She was kind of promoted, hey, we have to shoot. We don't have someone. You want to play this role? And she said, sure. And she she uh, took it on. I don't know if you see what I'm getting at, but Bridget Fonda is an excellent, excellent actor as well. And she has a small role in this. And I was like, oh, but she's a little too old. She's like 24, 25. But then when I read that the role was supposed to be of a 25-year-old, I'm like, you couldn't, Bridget, she's probably already in Italy. You couldn't have asked Bridget, Bridget Fonda to be like, hey, would you consider this role? If not, I get it, but you're an accomplished actor. You know, when I watch The Godfather 3, and I love it, but it's not on the other levels, and I think about a couple things, and we'll get to the other one a little bit later, but one of them I think about is how great this would have been, because Andy Garcia is amazing in this film. Yeah. Joe Montaigne, amazing in this film, right? Yep. Their dynamic, their power play is my favorite part of this film. I love the Vatican stuff. I love all that. I love that shit. If you had another serviceable or we'll say more than
and serviceable actor, kind of like the Juliet in the Romeo Juliet and then his stuff and this young bastardo, his rise to power. I think you elevate that movie. And I think that kill at the end is more like, oh my God, because there's no point that I'm rooting for these cousins to get together, right? I think if you have a good acting performance, you're like, I know they're cousins, but I don't know. You know what I mean? And that's one of the misses here that I really wish they got right. And you know what? I blame Francis, but I blame the studio because someone drops out like that. Today, they delay the project as long as they can to get it right. That was not happening here. And something I really noticed on this watch. It's okay. It's funny because over on the Drillbit Taylor episode, I was just on, we sort of dive into nepotism for a minute there. And I was also kind of thinking about that with, in, in the context of this film as well. And now hearing more, you know, about the entire situation, it just makes me feel worse about it all and everything. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's just all too bad. And what's even worse is that Bridget Fonda and Andy Garcia are electric together right? for the moments that they spend time on screen together. It's insane. You could have hired a bit player to play that fucking reporter, right? You didn't need Bridget Fonda, who was really hot at the time. You could have let Sofia Coppola play the reporter. You know what? 100%. You, know? you could have, right? <laughs> but it's funny, too, because you say, like, all of that other stuff, like, I feel like all of the cousin stuff, it's so vital to the Vincent storyline, and yet you're right. It, it's, like, truncated, and it's cut around mostly, and you could almost delete it from this version if it's not about family as much as it's about power and betrayal for sure uh, which ultimately i think are cooler themes and more in line now with godfather now that his family is sort of left him for the most part right like he only has mary at his side and this you know his bastard nephew uh so it's like and his sister and his sister who's like the real godfather yeah. at this point yeah which I, I saw even more in this version but mike one thing i just want to say about bridget fonda is that if, if anyone like oh she doesn't look italian enough she's k's daughter too she's only half italian let's say she just got all k's features you know i honestly think to me that that adds a little element to it right she's like definitely oh god missed opportunity the whole idea that like you remind me so much more of my of of your mother that whole kind of angle and then you could still have you know and his son looks very much like he would be their kid also like sort of shares all the features so like that would that would have been amazing like he wants her to be the face of Corleone but she doesn't even look Italian or something Uh, you know they could play into those politics like that would have been refreshing we could sit here and rewrite it the whole time (laughs) we're we're just we're just trying to re-edit it with the shit that we have available exactly (laughs) but it is interesting how there is definitely it plays differently there's no doubt about it like that is um, undeniable about this. So it's it's very much a different movie than I was expecting it to be. You know, like we were saying, that not just the pace, but certain themes that they focus on, things that are trimmed to put stuff in different contexts. Like, it's all here, and I'm actually surprised it's working in that way. Like, I didn't really realize... Usually when that's done, when a movie is sort of recut and repurposed or something, it's it's like an older foreign film for a new American audience or something. Like, that was done a lot with Godzilla, okay? Like, Godzilla movies, you know, generally premiered at the drive-in on a double bill with uh, terrible voiceover overdubs, right? And they were sort of, you know, became a bit of a joke for a while there. And, and you know, people always think of Godzilla. They think of the people talking funny and stuff like that. But, you know, that's sort of what has to happen sometimes to recontextualize something or to cross uh, a cultural barrier of some kind or to just, you know, or sometimes people are just stupid and they don't know how to market something. But uh, it's just funny that the power of an edit 
done right actually has like a lot of weight and like you can tell when when it's done right as opposed to just sort of that's why i don't really feel like this is as much of a cash grab i've always wanted to do like kind of an experiment where uh they say film's like an editor's medium right but i even a guy like me who didn't go to film school didn't study film i always hear that but like i always you know kind of take it with a grain of salt I'm like, yeah, sure, that's just editor talk. It's probably, like, on, like, the editor's union uh, seal or something. But I've always wanted to take, like, have a great filmmaker shoot a film and just have raw footage and not even consider the edit and have, like, three different great editors edit Mm -hmm. the film and see what it would look like. And uh, this is not that this is to that level because you still have the same guy controlling everything essentially but this is a good um thesis for the film being an editor's medium probably more apocalypse now but this as well for sure where you're just like oh a tweak here a tweak there what do you say five minutes shorter and it feels like not a different movie but the tone feels different yeah and i mean that is the whole idea of editing you know like i'm not trying to say that like you know this is, i mean that's how it's done you know like and and exactly what you said like two or three people would edit the same footage completely differently based on their instincts their styles their their rhythm all of that kind of stuff but it isn't seen often and when it is seen i don't feel like it's very successful so that's why this is sort of uh, one of the things it, it, it sort of stands out with this movie to me one funny thing i remember hearing on an audio commentary is that uh, sam raimi's original spider-man movie what he ended up doing was he hired two editors and he gave them all the footage and he said go create two different cuts of the film and then he brought a third guy in to use those two edits to make the actual movie so he would like smash together sequences from two different editors wow. to that's what he said on the audio commentary so I, that always comes to mind and i always think of how um, the original cut of star wars when george lucas aired that for his friends like it was just an unwatchable mess and then his wife at the time marcia uh and coppola was one of her like assistants i believe recut the entire movie into what we see today basically saving it you know finding that sort of rhythm to it that pattern that that George couldn't, I guess. But uh, yeah, I mean, that is the power of the medium. And, you know, I think Coppola is more of an editor than a director, to be quite honest with you. It seems like he has more of like a, I mean, he's an amazing director. Please don't get me wrong. (laughs) he, he, He is an exceptional director. But what I'm saying is he's put out more recuts of his movies lately than new films. Okay. So, you know, I don't necessarily know if that has to do with like physical limitations on his behalf being older at this point or or whatever but like it just seems that it's more what he's about and i'm cool with that i think that's cool i mean do i need another cut of rumblefish not necessarily (laughs) unless there's a lot of extra cage footage laying around somewhere on the floor but (laughs) but it is cool that these are coming from him and like we said way earlier it doesn't bug me as much as just putting out like a director's cut or an extended cut just to sort of cash in or something yeah yeah for sure Okay, so before we get to the end, which I feel is like one of the more extreme changes that were done to alter like the entire story, I want to talk quickly about the scene when Michael goes to Sicily and he's uh, they're kind of hiding out at that guy's house, you know, where from Godfather One. Don Tomasino. Was that different footage? Like it seemed to be presented more in like a wider one shot than I recall. But then again, it's deep into the movie and I didn't rewatch the original. But I just felt that that stuff played out 
differently, maybe better to a degree, just because I felt like the calm before the storm way more. Like it just gave me a sense that something was coming more than I recall from the previous movie. And that might just be because there's less to sort of focus on this time around. So that when they get down to more of the mafia business towards the end, I'm like more interested in this kind of stuff now. It's like more political. So they just seem more like power moves. But uh, just that scene there felt a little different to me, even if it wasn't, you know, just having watched this cut. Well, Sicily feels different in general. And I know, you know, you mentioned that you kind of liked the fatigue of going back and forth to Rome, New York. And I, I actually get that. But I like this way better for a lot of reasons, and I think the main one is it does remind me of previous Godfathers. One of the things that I think Coppola does so well with the movies is he's able to transport setting so well, like right? Because like, like, they're in Vegas, they're in Cuba, and when they're in Cuba, they're in Cuba, you know? It's awesome. Here we go to Atlantic City for a day, and we don't see anything. <laughs> we see the helicopter pad and a parking lot. It's weird because the Atlantic City Massacre, as it's called by the fans, it felt more impactful in the first film than in this film, which is weird because it's like a whole helicopter shot, you know? Yeah, but I feel like they make the aftermath a little more clear about like who's responsible, possibly. Yes. Like, they list the people who survived, and then, all right, that sounded like it was maybe a enhanced a little bit so we got the picture a little bit better yeah i i agree with that and honestly i think it's because of pacing that instead of that being one of the climaxes i don't know the proper word for it because i know it's not the climax but instead of that being one of like the points where you're like oh my god i think the point and sorry i know i'm going around about with your question but oh it's fine i think the point where and it's one of my favorite points um, where they kill Joey Zaza in Little Italy uh, with one of those, like, you know, kind of San Gennaro feast sort of things. And, and uh, you, oh, I love it when uh, Andy Garcia's on the horse. She's like, Zaza. It's yeah. my favorite. You know, I love it so much. And it felt, like, cooler this time because I don't know why. I guess where it was in the movie and just the pacing of it. Like, that felt more important than the Atlantic City massacre thing to me, you know? Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I, I kind of felt that, too. There was more... I don't know how he did it, but it does seem like there was more importance on wanting to kill Joey Zaza and not doing it sooner, right? So that when Connie finally, like... It was a Connie, we find out, like, gave the order because Michael has his little, like, diabetic stroke. <laughs> By the way, really quickly, because I don't want to forget this. It might be in the original cut. I don't know, but there was a lot I noticed in this watch that I've never noticed before. And one of them is when he is uh, visiting Cardinal Lamberto and he has his diabetic attack and he's like, oh, bring me orange juice and candy. And Lamberto, like, summons, like, a, uh, you know, one of his minions to get it. And the guy has it in less than 15 seconds, a whole tray of candy and orange juice. I'm like, was that just there? I don't understand. <laughs> Next time you watch this movie, just like look for that because the guy's like, okay. And then he like turns around and has an entire like silver tray of it. But yeah, so Connie and Al Neri apparently give him the go ahead to do the murder. And while Michael's a little pissed, but he understands. And in this version, this version, I saw more of Michael being like, okay, it's cool to kill Joey Zaza. Like, um, he, and okay, so in that original version, it really just seems like Michael's like, I want peace. I don't want to kill people. I'm forced to kill people kind of thing. And then this one, it was more, oh, come, you know, come with me. Let me I'm going to take you under my wing. Let's see what's going on. You know, I don't know why, but that's what it felt like. In, after that meeting with the Joe, Joey Zaza at the, at the party, it's, it's as, almost as if Michael was like, you know, I got to keep an eye on Vincent so that he doesn't kill Joey Zaza until I tell him to. As soon as he's like, you know, what do we call people who tell 
Michael Corleone to fuck off or whatever. That person is a dog, right? He's like, yes, he would not be a person. He would be a dog. Like, once you see that, I feel like in this version, because of the different opening scene with him sort of, like, putting his, like, fist down with the cardinal and everything, or with the church and stuff in the beginning, where you feel, like, that power play much harder, it feels way more threatening, like I was saying before. Like, he just feels like he has more energy somehow. Like, he is not strayed from his old way at all like it is all just a farce um he's not even like telling lies to himself like he knows he's lying to people he's just trying to control them like that's how it's coming across and i like that more when it is in relation to all of this old gangster stuff with Joey Zaza and everything like that. And and I feel like as soon as he says to Vincent, like, come work for me, you're the next godfather. Like, I'm going to groom this guy to take my place because I see he's like half my brother who was off the chain and he's like kind of half like me, very sort of passionate and, and stuff about family and things. And so it's wild how differently that relationship feels to play out throughout the movie. Now, I just wish the stuff with Mary was stronger too, so that at the end, it's way more of a conflict because like I would never believe that he would betray Michael for Mary to another Don, and that's what we're asked to believe. No one would no one would believe it. No one would believe it. you're No one would believe that and head. I still don't believe it in this version, unfortunately, no. is what I'm coming is what I'm saying. No, hundred <laughs> so, percent. So they still sort of don't stick that landing with just an edit. But it got way closer and I liked their relationship a little more. I agree with you. Um and Mike, you're you're like sparking all these thoughts in me. So Michael's son, who's the opera singer, he sees him and he's kind of like petitioning him, be a lawyer and be a lawyer for me. And he doesn't want to do it. And in that moment, he when he gives his blessing, he kind of realizes, my son's not a killer. He has a lot of K in him. He's a pussy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, no, but, but he's also not ashamed of him. He's almost disappointed. True. And you have a guy like Vincent, Andy Garcia, who's walking in the room, and you can tell right away he's biting a dude's ear. This guy's a killer. He has what he needs to run this business. And if Michael wants to divorce this business, he knows he can't really give it to his son deep down inside. He knows he's got to give it to a killer. And when he takes Vincent under his wing, he becomes the son he never had. And that's no shame to his other son, who is to his real son, because I think he understands that he loves his son, especially when he feels, when he sees that he's singing in Palermo for the first time and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. As soon as he realizes his son's actually successful and, like, is going to yeah, okay. be okay, then he's 100% encouraging, right? He's like, oh, this is terrific. You can't even <laughs> pronounce the name of the fucking opera right. You know? But ultimately, I think his relationship with Vincent lets him accept his son because he sees he has an heir that he doesn't even have to put the crime on. He doesn't have to make right. his soft son a killer because he has this killer with him. And I hate going back to this but we have to go back to uh is it what's his daughter's name mary yeah mary, mary? will somebody hail mary <laughs> we have to go back to mary because mary if she's played by someone who's stronger should have been kind of different than her brother there shouldn't have been two using your words like pussies in the family or just like weak people in the family right like the the way the way it could have played would have been a terrific classic sort of tragedy where you have the daughter who's ready strong and willing to take over but can't because she's a woman right like and the cousin of the next don right because if she was just a woman yes they could have ruled together if you will but she can't 
that's so much more powerful. And if you think about it, right, like there's a line where it's like, oh, so she's going to get all the money if he dies, not the son, because he's doing his opera thing. Like, it don't exactly say that, but they insinuate that. And then you're thinking, really? 19-year-old her? The 19-year-old Valley Girl is going to get all the money? That doesn't seem right, you know? But if she's this, like, shark, if she's this, like, shrewd... Because the lines are almost written like she's a shrewd shark. Like, yeah, Daddy, uh, tell, tell me the the thing is for me right but like as she's developing as she's falling in love with vincent she's ready to be that mafia wife right yeah she's not stupid she picks up on it early where she's she basically and they that's the scene they cut in half which is funny because they almost make her feel more not complicit but like an accomplice because like they the whole scene originally was her coming in saying like i don't want this to be illegitimate like don't use my face as a front and now it kind of feels more like are you using my face i'm just checking like not that i don't approve but i'm just making sure this is what's happening right like that's how it came across to me as opposed to her just being like don't do that i want to be the legitimate face of this operation now it seems a little more like well like i get what's going on behind the scenes like i'm willing to be the front if that's what it takes to you know own the family one day or or something like that like maybe that's not what's happening but that's how it's playing out to me and the only reason it does is not because that's what francis wanted because the lines that that's the worst scene in the dubbing and he probably just cut the dubbed lines you know right that's because that's what it does like it, it makes her almost like a patsy in the original cut like she's collateral damage or something whereas this time she's trying to get in over and over again even with her cousin she's like will not let it go up until the end and then she gets caught in between the bullet it's almost like her consistently trying to solidify her place in this family yeah ultimately this is a film where again i enjoy godfather 3 i stress everyone watch godfather 3 either version but maybe this version because it's more modern i don't know i hate that it gets shit on and part of the reason by the way it gets shit on is another franchise you've covered another franchise i've been on in your podcast for rocky 3 we were on this one but rocky 5 comes out the same year talia shire and rocky 5 is just trash let's be honest there's there's very very little good things in rocky 5 it's a rough one go for it go 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 for it hey, yo tommy go hey, yo go for it yeah that was one i think it took a nap during the uh, marathon <laughs> <laughs> rocky five also deals with a surrogate son and a real son right but it's trash so it's not good you have them come out the same year and they got looped together but remember this was still nominated for an academy award and i think if this cut comes out today it's still nominated for an academy award i'm not saying it's winning but they're both good versions of this story this beautiful story that again i'll love and i'll always love but when we talk about it you and i or any kind of film podcast when you're discussing it you kind of just focus on the flaws and you focus on the missed opportunities and this one made me think so much more of the missed opportunities because we finally got a way that he could correct some things and it's like oh you're almost there but what if and i cannot leave this bridget fonda thing i'm sorry like i I keep thinking about it. I keep thinking about it. <laughs> I feel like he did the best that he could 100%. With, the, with the material he had. He changed every character, basically, for me. You know, I feel like Kay never comes around in this version where I feel like in the original she sort of does. Even when she says, I'll always love you, it's the hardest thing for her in the world yes, to it, say. She, this one, she's saying, I always love you and I hate myself for it. Where in the other cut, it feels like she's forgiving him. 
when they do their little trip in Sicily in the original one, it's almost like a fun like little jaunt through the countryside. This one is more her trying her best to get along with this monster that she used to love and still loves, and she hates herself for it. She's not miserable on this trip. She she has some enjoyment, but ultimately, it's not about her, you know, accepting Michael on this one. It's more about her tolerating Michael on this one, letting him into her children's life and being okay with him. And that when it's like, let me put on a funny hat. And Sorry, when I say that one, I mean the original cut. It's, let me put on a f- funny hat and drive a car and drive her around, right? It looks like Sicily. And there seems to be some kind of redemption in the original cut of the third one. And this one, there's not redemption. It's just like, he's trying his best and it's a little pathetic at times. And her tolerating it, I don't know. I like that aspect. I loved Kay more. 100% more in this one than, than the original cut. She feels way more assertive even in the opening scenes uh, with the cake and everything. Would you like some cake? Yeah. Like he's trying to make light of this extremely serious situation and change the subject every two minutes with the fucking piece of, like eating a piece of cake while she's trying to talk about business and stuff like that. It turns into that like romantic comedy in the original <laughs> cut for a minute there. And in this one, it's more like I feel Kay comes to terms with the idea that she's never gonna be rid of this guy she can't cut this limb off no matter how hard she tries like yeah i think she's happy about letting him let their son follow his dreams and everything but he still has his grip on mary and i think that really you know she's not showing how much that fucking bothers her and at the and when she says like it never ends when um you know when they come in and they're like they killed tomasino or whatever and they're like we have we must have revenge uh and she hears that this time for sure she's like i'm stuck here for the rest of my life i don't know how this happened to me but i'm stuck here and i have to live with this i do like the original cut but i loved what they did with Kay here again i hate doing this but i'm gonna go back to the mary character because you said something super interesting they are never able to play that like you've let my one child do his thing stop controlling mary mary loves you mary adores you mary is like trying to be you i as the mother do not want to happen because I see what's happening. And, he, and this one's a little bit better, but in both versions, it's like, oh, she's in love with a handsome Italian man. And Michael's the one who's like, that can't happen. And Kay seems like, well, you know, if she, that that's her, it could. And really, I think that she should more. And I think if the performance of Mary was a little bit better, you could play the tone a little bit better there. And now you can't really because she just seems like an innocent blah. But if she wasn't, if she was, again, if it was stronger, Kay could be like, you know, I get it. I was that person. I I don't want her to live that life kind of thing and you don't get that tone here because you're not seeing it in the scenes it's so true because what's happening to mary is exactly well not exactly but like it's very similar uh to what happened to Kay. she fell in love with this hood thug that she didn't realize how deep it went right mm-hmm. like how dangerous it really was and that is the same that is the parallel storyline like that is what is being rebooted from Godfather 1 is like the K. Michael stuff with Mary and Vincent. I think it's played all a little better, maybe just because it's just a fresh perspective and my mind is focusing on different stuff, so I'm possibly drawing more from performances than I did last time, but the vibe is just less light. Like, it just, the whole tone of this just feels more heavy in general. Before we get to the very end of this, like, there's one character we really got to talk about first, and that's Connie. This is almost the Connie cut. I think that he snuck in a lot of extra shots of her just looking. Like, they would just cut to Connie every once in a while, just as if, like, he was looking 
for like approval or like agreement or something like that. There just seemed to be way more emphasis on her. Like, again, she was emphasized a lot in part three, but felt way more behind the scenes. In this one, she feels like she's right by his side the entire time. I agree with you in that. And I think I even said Connie seems kind of annoying in the original cut. Like he th- like Francis was trying to force feed her down our, our throat as like this like shadow dawn. In this one, she seems more in lockstep in this one. Now they have like, you know, subtle little, oh, Connie, you ordered that hit kind of things. Like you shouldn't have done that. But But also like she doesn't know he killed Fredo still, right? Like he's still lying to her. So there's still a level of control there. I'm sure if she found out she would kill him herself. Well, that's the thing. I feel like if you go through the Connie arc, this cut is better for the Connie arc, right? We open up the original Godfather with her wedding and everything's supposed to be perfect. And the way that movie rides out with her husband being a douchebag and being involved in the killing of her other brother. You know, remember, she's lost two brothers here. They're the only surviving Colleone children. And when we go through that and then we go through the second one where she's trying to marry that guy and things get weird and she's kind of a liaison to Kay. She seems like she has, like, a good relationship with Kay. And now this one where it feels like she finally respects Michael's authority as the heir to her father, who she idolized more than anyone. Her father's kind of throne, if you will. In that original cut, she seems kind of, to be... I hate to say it, but annoying because she's like forcing the Autobello stuff down her throat. She's the one who ends up killing him, which by the way, I have to say one of the errors of this cut that makes no sense is that they're showing the party and she's chumming it up and asking Don Autobello to sing and all that. Then we get a scene where Michael and Connie are in a room and Don Autobello walks in and he's greeting them like he hasn't been at the party. I don't know if you caught that. Oh, when he wants to donate the check. Yeah, and they're like, oh, Tabello, you're here. It's like, yeah, no shit. You were just singing out there with each other, you know? So, like, that's something that, again, I know you can't correct, and I'm sure Francis was like, I hope people don't notice this because it makes no chronological sense. Regardless, I don't know. I wasn't a big fan of Connie in the original cut. And in this one, you're absolutely right. She seems in lockstep with Michael. If they're disagreeing, they're disagreeing for, like, stupid things. But she's almost like a consigliere in this. I know Al Neri, I think, is officially the consigliere, but he doesn't get too many lines. It's really Connie who's the consigliere, let's be honest. Absolutely. It reminds me of, like, The Master, the movie, the Philip Seymour Hoffman movie, where there's a reading of that to say that Amy Adams is the mm-hmm. master, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is sort of just the face of the organization that she uses to get the message across so that no one finds her out or anything like that. And, like, yeah, this this feels a little more like that. Like, this definitely plays better for me in terms of, like, having, like, a mafia sort of family as opposed to, like, a just a regular family like she transcends just being a sister at this point where in the original cut it just felt like she was his sister trying to like give all this advice or or, like offer suggestions and in this one she almost feels like an employee or something and you're totally right like she idolizes him now as if she's his father like it's so strange like it's such a weird like talk about like all the other incest stuff going on like in this movie there is a weird dynamic between connie and michael where it is almost like a father daughter kind of thing sometimes just as far as like the mafia power structure that was established in the previous films and things like that strange but great you feel like connie is going to help vincent going forward right you feel like she's not gonna just like retire into the sunset and hang out with like depressed michael you feel like she's going to help settle the scores with Vincent. But I think the trajectory that's understood by Godfather fans, which are not as big as Star Wars fans, but they're pretty big. Vincent goes on, he's the Don, and he he basically runs New York again, and he essentially becomes 
Because remember, this is, takes place in 1979. Right, right. So this will be throughout the Yeah, he becomes almost like a John Gotti into the Sopranos kind of era. Basically, you have to steal drugs if you want to make money in the mafia in the 80s. So I would say that the timeline it was supposed to be is like, again, John Gotti to like early Sopranos. That's pretty cool to see like Atlantic City a little bit more and like Atlantic City rise into something. And it's just like a lot of that like neon of the 80s and the cocaine and and things like that. And just the mafia basically getting ripped apart by litigation and Giuliani before he went crazy, like in in, uh, the late 80s, early 90s. That'd be cool to see mirrored with that rise of Sonny. Who knows? Again, they'll never do it. Because it's just like, the, and I I'm agree with it. The Godfather is sacred text. Don't mess it up. But there is something we can imagine that's pretty fun with that. And I don't, I never heard someone ever criticize Andy Garcia's performance in this. I've heard people criticize, oh, he doesn't look Italian. He looks Cuban. And I get that, whatever. But anytime you talk about Godfather 3, they're like, even people who hate it, haters are like, oh, Godfather 3, you know, it sucks. But Andy Garcia is good. Or, you know, that's always said. He's my favorite part of the movie. His performance is just insane. Just from the first time, like, he can't get into the party and he starts a fight with the guy. And then, so good. you know, the next scene, he's screaming and shouting in Michael's office. And I love his performance. And then for him to actually show, like, to believe that he's in love with Mary. Like, you know how hard that is to act in this movie? <laughs> And I fucking fucking buy it. I mean, you know, I love him in this. And I think he looks a lot like Pacino did in Godfather 2. And I never fucking picked up on that. And if I did, I don't remember doing that. I didn't listen back to the old episode. But yeah, there's a lot of striking sort of resemblance. There's a lot of great reason for him to be here. I love his character very much. You know, it was a good move not to do the next movie. As much as it would have been cool to sort of show it in parallel to something happening, you know, 40 years prior or something it would have been kind of redundant because we get a lot of 80s gangster stuff you know mentioned goodfellas more maybe 90s stuff but like scarface right like a different a different type of mafia mob movie and everything but like there there's a lot of mob stuff of the 80s explored with that and it's mostly excess and coke and you know guns and murder and stuff it's like i don't need more of that Again, you know, there's kind of enough of that going on already. So, so, so Mike, I'm going to ask you a question. Let's say you have to give the green light to this. These days, I, I talk about this a lot, like off air and on air, but movies have really taken a decline. Like everything now is a remake or superheroes or whatever. But what actually artists are able to really explore their medium a lot more is TV more than ever, right? Let's say they're going to make more of a Godfather tv series right and it's a remake how many years need to pass right like i wouldn't i wouldn't give the green light now but it's gonna happen at some point it's inevitable it's gonna happen at some point if i have a kid i mean they might like the godfather but you think they're gonna see it as sacred text like you and i see it and you and i weren't even born when the original godfather came out Dude, I don't. I'm I'm already of the mindset that nothing's sacred. Like, don't worry about me. Uh, it's all about you know the execution, right? It's all about the pe- like the end piece. Like, it's about the product for me. It's like, is that good or bad? I personally wonder because I know Robert Zemeckis, um, friend of Francis. He has stated they will never, ever, ever remake or do another Back to the Future as long as he lives. And I think the key words there are as long as he lives. And I think there might be something of the same effect with Francis where he's like, you can't touch my stuff until I'm dead. And then, well, 
I can't stop you. Plus, he has kids that are very prolific. That uh, like Roman is a very good writer, and he directs and stuff. He works with uh, Wes Anderson, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. on a lot of stuff. Like he's got lots of nephews. Like Jason Schwartzman's terrific. You know, Cage. Like there's a big family there that could do a lot of good. I think with a lot of his material. Now, I don't want to see like Jason Schwartzman do a remake of Apocalypse <laughs> Now, <laughs> and I don't want Cage playing Captain Kurtz, or do I? But like. <laughs> You know, a blessing to go ahead and make a Godfather TV show isn't crazy. Like, I don't think there's anything sacred in that regard about the Godfather, like, or any movie property, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, you hear about Amazon's Lord of the Rings series or stuff like that coming out, and it's like, well, you know, some people think Peter Jackson tanked the Lord of the Rings franchise anyway with The Hobbit, so why not, like, just keep going with that and wait or anything, but... I just feel like if it's a good idea, if it's done right, then fine. There's always a chance it's going to suck, and that's too bad, and I never root for anything to be bad. (laughs) But if they were to announce a Godfather show for Netflix, I'd be down with that, I think. I'd I'd like to see where that goes. I think it could cover a lot of ground. This family is a very old family that goes back a long time. And who knows? I mean, Godfather uh, 2146. Let's take it to the future. Let's put the Godfather on Mars. Okay, no, stop. (laughs) All right. The Godfather's not going to space. It's not going to Mars. I would be down for it, again, if they did it right. I would like to see presented the Godfather 2 style throughout, right? So you could tell two stories at once. I want to hit the beats of the original Godfather movie. I want to hit the beats of Godfather 2. I want to see that in-between chapter we just talked about. There were rumors that Boardwalk Empire, the original plan was just to do essentially the history of Atlantic City in perpetuity. Nucky would go away eventually, and then we would bring it all the way to Trump in like the 80s. This is before Trump became president. Now it's Trump is a polarizing thing, but like this is going to be a hot take, but I would love to see like corrupt Trump in the 80s running casinos going bankrupt, cocaine everywhere, right? Like now, like half the country would be angry about that. But like theoretically, it doesn't have to be Trump himself, but a Trump-like guy going all the way with Boardwalk Empire to like the 80s in Atlantic City. That's cool. I would love a Godfather series that traces the mafia literally from this dude coming from Sicily to the United States all the way to like Sopranos era. Like that to me would be enticing. Again, if you did it right, don't fuck it up. You know what you do it? You call it the Godfather Anthology. Mm. And then that way, you don't have to connect everything with like a, a, a episode to episode. They could just be single stories told in certain points of time or whatever. You know, it opens it up to do it however you want to do it. You could tell it out of order. You could tell it in order. You could have different characters every episode if you wanted to. It wouldn't matter. Godfather Anthology. I would like to watch that. <laughs> Francis, if you're listening, put me and Mike in charge. Joey could be the producer, so we make sure we get the episodes in on time, and we're good. <laughs> Kyle could run the craft services. We're good. <laughs> so uh, before we get out of here, I think there's one final major adjustment that we have to address. Yes, yes, but I'll also have a coda to that. So. Oh, okay. Well, very fitting. <laughs> first, year, uh, first year adjustment, of course, the ending. Yes, so originally at the end of Godfather 3, after Mary is shot on the steps of the opera house and Michael wails in pain, we cut to 
Michael Corleone, old Michael Corleone, sitting alone in his house in Sicily as a very, very old man. And, and we zoom in on him and we see that it is uh, pretty good old age makeup, even for the time. And then we cut back out to a wider shot and he keels over, apparently dying. And it is the death of Michael Corleone. And in this cut, it fades to black before he dies. Very interesting change. I kind of, like, pondered this for a long time. Like, what does it mean? Why did he do this? How does it affect my reading of it and all of that thing? I think, I, I think I'm coming down on the side that I like it more. A, it's not goofy. Like, it was just a bad shot. Like, it just, it needed another take originally, I think, of a guy falling out of a chair. But it also implies that he's going to go on even longer to have to live with uh, the damage that he has caused. And he is going to think about this for maybe another 10, 15 years even. He cannot escape what he's done through death is ultimately like what I have uh, come to read this by. Like it is sort of transcended reality at that point, And it is more like uh, a metaphor that like he's going to live with this forever or he, you know what I'm saying? It's like that kind of statement to me. 100%. It's like you don't ever drop this. Like this has been with him. It will always be with him and it is going to continue to be with him uh, for a while. I actually think i like it mike i love it i love it Uh, and not just because the original shot was so bad and the makeup looked so shitty it didn't look shitty here i don't know how they did that uh maybe it was through cgi yo he tweaked some stuff with lighting he did a lot of subtle stuff there must be some new color adjustment tools out there that he got his hands on because there were times when even uh entire scenes were done in silhouette that felt like thicker darker silhouettes than i recalled like i think he affected something with the film uh and it felt way more of like a a noir to me than than it previously did it it used to feel brighter for so i think he did something yeah for sure but you're right this is uh what do they call it um you know if you don't get the death penalty you get a sentence that's 200 years and you just have to live with your crime your, your whole life. And that's what this feels like. Coppola has always said the main point of this movie is that Michael needs to pay for his sins. And he needs to pay for his sins with the blood of his children. And just knowing that that choice he made when he could have said, no, I'm not doing this. Put Fredo in charge of the family and let the family just rot and fall apart. But he took the family over. And essentially... It's even more simple than that. When in the first one, he decides to shoot that cop because he slapped him from pride, right? He could have been the good guy, as his dad said, right? Senator Michael Corleone, Governor Corleone, the war hero. Everyone's talking about him. He could have gone that way and and who knows, found a good life for himself. Probably at the very least gone to law school, been a great lawyer, done his thing and been separated. And it wasn't even like his family was like, you have to join the family business no yeah they didn't want him they wanted him to be legitimate yeah (laughs) but he made that choice and all the stuff that happens in between is disgusting and terrible but in actuality he is paying for that original sin of making that choice of shooting that cop he's paying for that sin for the rest of his life and yes only one of his kids died which is not like only one of the kids died i don't mean like that But he also essentially killed his other kid because his other kid tried to go legitimate as well, tried to just be an opera singer, not deal with the business. Do you think he's going to be hired by an opera company again, knowing there was a shootout because his mafia father came and and how the mafia ruined that performance for him? Do you think he even wants to sing again, his son? Do you think Kay's ever going to talk to him again? She finally gets to the point where she's like, okay, we're cool. And the daughter dies? 
this is him sitting in a chair and that's don tomasino's house by the way i don't know if he stays there as you said or he retires there who knows but he's alone that's so key about the scene he's alone and we see him drop dead in the other ones sure great i get it but this one's somewhere impactful because now i imagined he has not just days not just months he has years where he he's got years. sits in the chair and he thinks about the mistakes he made and it's like wow i shouldn't have joined i shouldn't have shot that cop i gotta have a normal life with k we could live in new hampshire we could just be normal i and i love the idea that he just waits out his eternity maybe you know he has a little juice maybe a little wine but he spends most of his hours in his older age sitting in a chair thinking wow what the fuck did i do and i even imagine the entire godfather trilogy is just him rethinking about all the shit that happened and all the shit he did and he's just in that chair like fuck fuck it comes across to me more like a life sentence than the death penalty if you catch my drift right like <laughs> and and you know too in this cut that he outlived k he outlived his other son like he outlived everybody which you don't get like i wouldn't have sort of uh, put that on the original cut i would have been like oh he's dead like k's gonna show up at his funeral and like spit on his grave or so you know what i'm saying like at this point we know like it's implied like he's gonna be the last one to die probably and that uh yeah it's like this this eternity that he has to live with it so good good move there did you like the quote that francis added at the end i i read it and forgot it so if you would like to read it or discuss it i would need to hear it again when Sicilians wish you sentiani, it means long life, and a Sicilian never forgets. Oh yeah, there you go. So he has a long life where he will never forget what he has done, and he has to live with that. But Mike, you forgot the quote. Did you need it to figure that out? This is, to me, like, come on, Francis. No. We get it. <laughs> Let your work speak for itself. We don't need that. Oh, that's what that, that means. That feel, <laughs> feels a little pretentious. <laughs> You could say that to yourself and, like, this is the inspiration for that scene. You don't need to put it in our face. You know what I mean? I I get it. It makes so much sense. It's perfect. It frames everything for us. But, again, this is, like, the thing at the beginning where he's talking. Come on. Dude, he may he may as well have like shot something extra for the end to pop back up and read the quote himself and be like, no, here's what I was trying <laughs> exactly. to say. Exactly. Because I think he, he did it. I think he accomplished it with the change here. So you don't need to tell us. You did it. Wow, uh, very cool, Brian. Like, I mean, from two guys who were fans of the original cut anyway, I think we had a really good discussion here dissecting the new cut, the Godfather Coda, the death of Michael Corleone. Um, I like them both. I don't. I can't say I like this one more yet. I've only seen it once. I've seen Godfather three original cut like at least three or four times. So like I'm just more used to that version. But I would recommend this. You know, I would definitely recommend this version. Uh, I think it might play better for most people. I think yes, people yes. won't even realize it'll be like a subconscious thing. They won't even know why it's running better. But it just plays a little bit better for I think like a general audience. So so two things, Mike, with that one. This reminded me less of a movie and more of like uh, when a TV show comes back and they have they have like a season like 10 years later. Like Twin Peaks to Return. Uh, I kind of get those vibes too with the way that I was saying earlier he was sort of do- going fading to black more as if it was almost going to a commercial uh, or like trying to uh, feel more like a TV show at times. Yeah, exactly. So, and I like that. I think that translates more for people today. And I think if... 
for some reason, I don't know why I'm thinking of it like this, but let's say I get divorced, which I don't want, but let's say I get divorced and I marry someone who's never seen any Godfather films. I would present the first two Godfather movies almost back to back and say, oh, you got to watch these. You got to watch these. And then it'd be like, oh, by the way, in 1990, he came back with this. And this is kind of like, oh, what happens to Michael? You know, and I think that was the original intention. And I would show my theoretical wife who's never seen The Godfathers. You know what? Why am I making it like I'm divorced? I'm so depressing. I have a son or a daughter who's never seen the movies because one of the things I most look forward to having kids is like being able to share great movies with them. And like, I think of like a theoretical son or daughter and being like, oh, this is The Godfather. These are like some of the greatest films of all time. And then showing them this one is almost like, oh, you want to know more? Here's kind of like what happens to Michael after all of this and i would show them the newer version because that's what it feels like you know it feels like more this is what happens to michael after rather than like this should be considered equal with godfather one and godfather two it's still very good but it's more again a coda it's more like oh do you like this do you want to know more because this is what happens rather than something that ruined the series which people said for years oh godfather three ruined the series fuck you godfather one and godfather two (laughs) are both amazing Amazing films, some of the greatest films of all time. You can't ruin that. It wasn't just like there's no Jar Jar Binks in this. You know what I mean? Like it's not to that yeah, level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing I wanted to just mention really quickly, Mike, was the original script. We talked about it on the first edition of Third Times a Charm here for Godfather Three. Was Tom Hagen, Robert Duvall's character, was supposed to be huge in this. He was supposed to be the one who kind of wanted to take the family legitimate, and Michael was the one with the criminal record. And Tom had always stayed a couple feet away from it so there was supposed to be a big power struggle and tom was supposed to be like michael you killed your brother you can't you shouldn't be the one to take the family i should be the one you should be retired and apparently people who have seen that version of it has said it's like so good and even francis has said like that's the version he'd prefer at the end of the day the studio did not want to pay robert duvall's demand he wanted to be paid as much as al pacino al pacino didn't care where the hell does he care you know but the studio was like no we're gonna make it for this budget and fuck you so francis had to rewrite it i wish we could if we did that whole like what we're saying like the godfather what did you call it the godfather legacy or something anthology anthology yeah if we made this godfather anthology i would more rather see that version play out the vatican has made a better villain in this than it should be by the way side note i guess i forgot that tom hagan's son is played by uh john savage from deer hunter no shit i didn't pick up on that what is that it's such exactly. a small, insignificant role. <laughs> That's John Savage from Deer Hunter? What the? Regardless. And, and they make a lot of allusions to Tom. But I would have loved that power struggle because Tom is a great character to me. He's the brother who never officially became a brother because he wasn't Italian, right? Like, he was adopted by them. He grew up with Sonny. And to have... Could you imagine you have the Vincent character? And Michael knew Sonny, but Michael and Sonny weren't that close. Sonny always saw Michael as lesser than him because he was the little brother. But Tom and Sonny grew up together like best friends. Yeah, they were thick as thieves. Exactly. So if you see like Vincent interact with Tom and he has this power struggle and he ends up choosing Michael over Tom who wants to go legitimate, I like where that's going. But that's the thing. You can't correct something like that. With, with a re-edit. You can't change that with a re-edit. So it's dead. It's never going to exist. But I have to bring it up because it is interesting to think about like, oh, this Tom Hagen character, like he just disappears from us. We're actually in this movie. I get what Francis was going for. He really should have been super important. 
Well, what's interesting, too, about the way that, like, things are going with films and television and stuff is, you know, we get something like the last Terminator movie or the last Halloween movie that picks up right after the first one, and it disregards all the other sequels and all the other remakes and everything else, and it just says, we are a sequel to this particular movie and continuing that specific story. So, with something like the anthology, you can change history. We can watch an alternate history of the Corleone family, you know, we can because re- we're recapping casting everybody to begin with. We could just make sure that we sign the actor playing Tom in the late 70s. We got him. Okay, cool. Like, (laughs) we can write this part of the story for him and we can continue it on from there. Like, it would be a really interesting divergent from what we have to change it and make it fresh again for something like a television. To bring up a part three, Mike, uh, that you'll definitely be on for my show. Maybe we'll have to cover it on your show too. Who knows? All the rumors for the third Spider-Man and the Tom Holland trilogy have people coming back and apparently Tommy Maguire was like, I want so much effing money and they're like wow this is the filmmaker's dream he wants this guy in it and they gave toby Maguire what he wanted but it's not like paramount was like going out of business at that point either no they're one of the few that are still around so if robert duvall wanted that money in 1990 and you think it's gonna make the movie great my point is if Marvel can cut a check for Tobey Maguire, who, let's be honest, is probably going to be in 10 minutes of this film, you know, maybe he'll be in half an hour of it, right? But he's not going to take over Tom Holland's role. We know that. Who knows? But today, I, I think studios just view things so differently. I think they realize that the public is a lot more educated than they assumed it was. If you make something like that today, and someone who's essential to... And it's not. this is not just a bullshit fucking writer's thing. This is Francis Ford Coppola. Francis Ford Coppola has a script, and Robert Duvall demands this money. You find a way to pay him. And maybe you can't get him the $5 million that he wanted. You get him 4.5. You know what I mean? Like, you do it. Yeah, it's weird. I feel like he just has this terrible timing with studios where he just missed the cutoff again where, like, people were doing that. People were giving James Cameron whatever he needed to get Arnold back to make the next Terminator movie in a year. You know, like, Michael Keaton could pull a quote out of the air for Batman Returns in a couple of years. You know what I mean? Like these things started happening where it became imperative to get the star back to make the next picture or else we can't do it anymore. It's like a dependency thing. I think that that has become huge these days. You know, like, okay, like, sure, you could recast a minor character, but like, fucking, they were never going to recast Robert Downey Jr., right? Like he just, he owned the role to death and stuff like that. So like, I feel like that's way more just sort of the climate these days is, you know, you become the role like you sign on to do it you're the one that does it and like that's not the only thing you do but you're the only one playing that part and i think it's coming up recently with like harrison ford where he's like i'm the only one ever playing indiana jones you know and it's like all right dude like i understand like you're connected to the role and then this and that and everything but like think of all the adventures we can't tell and and that's where i start to get a little upset sometimes with that line of thinking and everything but you know it, it is what it is and i'm just glad that we get anything to be quite honest with you but like yeah these these marvel movies at the point they're at as a company and the point that sort of the the industry's at it's changed so much to the point where that whole stuff with Tom Holland and Sony and Disney and Marvel and he had to call like one of the fucking presidents of the company and beg him to like not let Sony take him away forever you know what I mean it's like it's become like a bargaining chip to have this specific person play a particular role in everything and so it's something Francis like just missed you know (laughs) I feel like it's so sad (laughs) because could you imagine if he had not made Godfather 3 in 1990 if for whatever reason he waits till now to make Godfather 3 the check would be 
blank. Blank. They would say, whatever you need, Francis, we are going... I'm not saying he would do a great job now, because who the fuck knows, right? No, but it would it would be like The Irishman, though. Like, it would be a three-and-a-half-hour CGI face-altering gangster epic thing. <laughs> whatever it would be, right? Like, it, it could be that. It could be he could recast people. Who knows? But they would let him do whatever ever he wanted and i'm not exaggerating if it wasn't paramount it would be netflix or amazon or hulu or whoever it was would give him this and say francis whatever you need we will break the bank for you because godfather 3 after that layoff everybody would be watching it would be appointment tv and in retrospect, what do you have to pay for aside from the salaries? There's no real big things to spend budgets on. Again, unless it's as... like the whole CGI thing you're talking about, right? But like, let's say it's not. So paying Robert Duvall at whatever Al Pacino's making, and again, I'm going to assume Al Pacino doesn't care because he's still getting his money, you know? But paying Robert Duvall whatever Al Pacino's making is peanuts compared to what you're going to make today if the director is allowed to complete his vision. Peanuts. Anyway, anyway, it just gets me passionate. Again, I just overall loved watching this movie. I love The Godfather 3. Is it on the same level as Godfather 1 and 2? No. Is it still a great movie? Yes, it is. Yes. I agree with that entirely. I absolutely agree with you there. Um, I'm actually very glad that we fell down on the same side of the fence on this recut version to Godfather Coda, Death of Michael Corleone. I wasn't too sure, but that opening scene, I've got to be quite honest with you, Brian, after that opening scene, I was like, what? <laughs> I know. You, you text me your reaction, but... <laughs> but then, you know, I, I thought about it. It sat with me over the course of the party sequence, and I was like, oh, okay. Like, I'm feeling it. Like, I really started to feel it, like, rather quickly, and, and I got down with what was, uh, with whatever was going to come. And, uh, yes, pleasantly surprised this time. And he kept um, Scorsese's mom in, so that was <laughs> nice of him, too. He didn't trim that for time at all. <laughs> She's great. I love Scorsese's mom. I feel like she was being honest. And that's her neighbor. That is her neighborhood. Scorsese grew up on Elizabeth Street. I think that's a block or two away from Elizabeth Street, so I love it. Incredible, man. There's not much else to say. I think we should close it up for the night, Brian. So why don't you hit me up with some plugs? Let's let's close out the, the episode with some plugs. What do you got going on? This is coming out March 3rd. Jenna Guillaume is coming back to the podcast. We're going to finally... Mike, I'm sorry I'm cheating on you, but I have to talk to all the boys I love before part three on my podcast the third one is coming out but i know it's not on your major list so we're all good it's all good you're on una- your unofficial co-host here so you could just carry that over maybe there. i'll do book club because it's based on a book who knows but we have that one coming out we have our first episode of our second lap if you will or second lifetime i'm calling it of twilight but joe too is jumping on this lap so kate hudson joe too and i are going to talk twilight the original twilight film so that already happened as of march 3rd a bunch of stuff and there's some secret projects in the works for high school slumber party discussing the next chapter of high school slumber party because since i doubled up a lot of episodes in 2020 twice a week we are fastly approaching the 200th episode of high school slumber party that's going to be interesting. It's not going to be a live event like last time because when it comes up, we'll still not be allowed to gather in big crowds and live events. But it's going to be something special. I promise you guys that. So check out High School Slumber Party wherever you get your podcasts. Awesome. Love it. The show's not going anywhere for the rest of the year, at least. I'm sticking around. Looking forward to having you back this year to talk about another part three. I'm sure there's something else 
can get you in here. There's for a lot it. I want to talk about. Uh, you know, just when I thought it was out, you pulled me back in. There's a lot I want to talk about <laughs> yes. on this podcast for sure. I mean, there's a lot I want to listen to as well. We still have to kind of revisit that lost episode of Naked Gun. And there's a bunch of other stuff. We need to talk. We're too old for this shit. Part three. We need to talk that one. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Lethal Weapon. I mean, I got a lot. I got a whole. I just pulled all my comic book ones. So I got like Blade 3. We got to do that shit. Darkman 3. You know, I got to do more horror stuff. Phantasm series. Hellraiser series. I mean, there's a lot to get to. I mean, Indiana Jones hasn't been covered yet for cried out. I got a whole fucking lottery to pick the guys who's going to talk about that with me. So put put your name in a hat. I get it. I'll uh, I'll take a backseat to that because there's certain episodes of High School Slumber Party that I get asked almost like every two months. Hey, do you have any guests for this? And one of them, Mike, you're a signed up guest for Rock and Roll High School is a movie that I have at least 10 people who are like, oh, can I be in the Rock and Roll High School episode? Which, you know, we'll, we'll see when we see. But there are some movies that are so popular with people who want to talk about them. And I'm sure The Last Crusade for you is one of them. I'm fine sitting a couple plays out and just listening because I know so many people want to be on that one. So I get it. But again, my dream one, I have a couple dream ones. I've done them. This is definitely one of them. But you got to get me on Ragnarok because that's my favorite Marvel film. So whenever you do that, I want to talk it. Totally. And we got the new, maybe when the new Thor comes out, it's being filmed as we speak. Love and Thunder. Yeah. So thank you very much for joining me again, Brian. You are free to go now. Go to the opera. (laughs) Eat a cannoli. Just get someone to taste test it first so you know it's not poison. Thank you very much. Okay, that's going to do it for another episode of Third Time's a Charm. Got to thank my unofficial co-host, Brian High School Slumber Party Podcast Rodriguez, for coming back to discuss Dakota. Be sure to check out his shows on the network, as well as all back episodes of this show, as well as all the other shows I'm on at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Check out my new show, The Monsters That Made Us, with my co-host Dan Colon, where the last Friday of every month, we go through the history of the Universal Monster movies, with our latest episode being that of The Invisible Man. So check out that show. Check out the newest episode of Cage Club Prime, where Joey and I talk about Willie's Wonderland. It's another unique Cage performance, nice and early in the year. I thought the flick was a lot of fun, as was recording the episode with Joey, so check that out. And once again, everything else at cageclub.me. So, until next time. Three, 
That's a magic number. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three, Three may stub it me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean?